Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. Dr. Bruce Goldberg is author of a book called Egypt, an extraterrestrial and time traveler experiment. Now, over the years, I've read a lot of books about alleged extraterrestrial influences in our early history, but now you're adding a new wrinkle to it, which is time traveler experiment. Could you expand on that? What this means is that my research has shown that the development of Egypt, which is one of our most important civilizations, since, as we'll see, we all copy things from them, has not only been influenced by extraterrestrial terrestrials, especially two major groups, the Lyrans and the Syrians, as we'll discuss, but also it's been influenced by our very own species from 1,000 to 3,000 years in the future, when my research shows time travel will be discovered and actually utilized, and I call these chrononauts or time travelers. So we have both time travelers as well as extraterrestrials that have actually custom designed and molded all of our civilizations, Egypt being the most significant one. Okay, now what leads you to believe that any of this is true? Well, over about 25 years ago, I started getting some input from my patients. You have to understand, just for the listeners who may not be familiar with my work, my specialty, other than my dental degree in practicing dentistry for 13 years, is actually using hypnosis for things like past life regression. And, and actually, I developed the field of taking people into future lives, progression, future life progression. So when I started doing regressions well, over 33 years ago, uh, that was fine for several years. And then I started getting information from people who would report UFO abductions, things like that, which, of course, you all know about. But then we're reporting these abductions. Some of these abductions, about 15%, were not from extraterrestrials from our time period, but actually were from a group of what we call time travelers from our very own future, headed by pure human beings. They were extraterrestrials as part of a team, yes, but the actual head of these teams and the discoverer, if you will, of time travel is a, uh, a, a pure human in the year about 3000. And when I started getting that, I said to myself, of course, naturally, I was a little bit skeptical about this. But then the issue that convinced me was something we call in science Watley Law's evidence, which, which simply means that if you get the same reports from people from all over the world who have no contact with each other, then it must be true. And what I was getting was people who, before I published my book, no one's ever written a book, with all due respect to the public out there, or my colleagues out there, no one's ever written a detailed book on time travelers, uh, except for my books. I have two books now, now that are on time travelers, giving the names, dates, and places. These are physical descriptions, the actual, of course, dates and names. And these people were reporting the same people over and over again. And then I, when I published my first book on time travelers, of course, then you say, well, that's fine. Now that book is out, people can read it. But now additional information has come up since I wrote my first book, or had it purpose, published about eight years ago. And now, again, it's being reported from people from all over the world. So I'm getting a consistency to this. And the logic of this, when we deal with the forbidden archaeology aspect of this, is unbelievable. For example, ancient Egypt. I talk about this, and I know you guys have an interest, because I've seen you actually put this on your website, about there is a very now more well-known hieroglyphic depiction in the Temple of Dendara in Egypt, in Cairo, which shows an actual electricity being developed or being exhibited by ancient Egypt. And this hieroglyphic, if you will, in Dendara, room 17, to develop, uh, dedicated to the uh, goddess Hathor, if you will, shows not only abraded cables and all the details of a Van de Graaff generator that would be relevant to electricity, 
but also shows a primitive crook's tube, if you will, and anyone can, if you, if your listeners, if they just Google onto Temple of Dendara, they'll see the depictions of this. They will actually see a primitive crook's tube. A crook's tube is a primitive television set. So there's no other reasons why you would depict braided cables in a hieroglyphic. And by the way, it's been dated to the Ptolemy era, which would be 300 B.C. to about 30 B.C., you know, Cleopatra the seventh, the last Ptolemy. So here we have 2,300 years ago, 2,000 conservatively, where Egypt is depicting electricity and very probably television because the crook's tube is, in fact, a primitive television tube. So therefore, we have things like that. We have the gods and goddesses like Isis, Osiris, which we'll learn that were actually time travelers. But in ancient Egypt, they worshipped gods. Now, Egyptians, in, in the old days, let's say 2,000 to three, 4,000 years ago, looked very similar to what Egyptians look like today. They were short, they were dark-skinned, they had curly blonde or brown hair and brown eyes. Well, guess what? The Isis and Osiris goddess combination, they were husband and wife in their theology, and of course pharaohs and gods, they were depicted as blonde, blue-eyed Caucasians, which did not exist in ancient Egypt naturally, I can tell you that. And they sure didn't have any Swedish flight attendants coming in there to uh, interbreed with them. So uh, we have a lot of depictions of forbidden archaeology, if you will, which shows that there's some significant interaction and the technology uh, is just unbelievable. We have pre-Columbian art. We have these, um, probably you're familiar with these if you study the forbidden archaeology, these pre-Columbian little like uh, jewelry that were made in, in South America of, of actual aircraft, of actual, um, they, these things that are jewelry that were going back about 2000 BC, 1500 BC. And number one, they showed like, they look like stealth planes. They look like our, our jet planes from today. They also were made of platinum, which requires about 1700 degrees Fahrenheit to melt down. Even ancient Egypt didn't use platinum. So where does the technology come from? From supposedly barbaric, primitive people that were not very far removed from Cro-Magnon Man. Well, look at this, for example. Now, we can say or even theorize that we might have had a very highly advanced civilization in ancient times that maybe got into disrepair. What would happen if we had some kind of catastrophe, worldwide catastrophe that destroyed our civilization, how would we end up a thousand years from now, for example? That could be a possibility. Also could be a possibility that we did have interaction with extraterrestrials. But other than these regressions, how do you attach that to time travelers? Well, again, remember, the, the reports now, when you read about forbidden archaeology, if you read Cremo and Thompson's book, or John Michael from the old days, M-I-C-H-E-L, wrote several books on this, or the 14 Phenomena, there are many people throughout the last oh, 100 years, give or take, that have written about artifacts that, um, you know, the, the Baghdad battery, you know, things like that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and the Saqqara Plains in Egypt, we'll talk about that, because that's relevant to a past life regression, several of mine have done. The, the point here is that, okay, so we have these examples that show some sort of advanced civilization, and some of them, of course, show ET mentality. We have cave drawings from uh, 20,000 years ago in southern France and, and, northern, and Spain that show uh, uh, ETs and, you know, people with helmets and, and air oxygen tanks on them coming from a craft. I mean, and the Pleiades is also depicted in, in the southern France caves, if you will. How did the primitive man 20,000 years ago, even if he was homo sapiens sapiens with a brain capacity, if you will, but living in caves, you know, eating bisons, uh, how does he come up with the Pleiades, seven sister planets, if you will, depicted perfectly in the cave drawings? So you think, okay, that's ETs. Now, as a time traveler, well, interestingly enough, when I do the regressions, again, the consistency of the reports is very relevant scientifically. Secondly, you also have the aspect of 
Nobody else seems to be reported. This isn't a common thing, for example. You don't have a lot of people walk around saying, oh, by the way, I met tracks of a time traveler and Tatos. That, that's not your typical thing. There haven't been movies and TV shows done on this, especially using the names and the places, if you will. If anything, people, when they report time travelers, if you look at, shall we say, not exactly docudrama TV shows like The X-Files and, and various films that are out there, they don't talk about time travel being discovered in the year 3050, give or take. They talk about it within the next 100 to 200 years. So if people are reporting 1,050 years from now, they're not getting that from the mass media. They're not getting that from novels, TV, or feature films. So therefore, again, it's adding additional credibility. Well, we do have that TV show, 4400, of course. Stop. I know, but but, but what what does that give? Does that give the names of time travelers being the same names used as Egyptian gods going back to anywhere from 2,000 to 5,000 years ago? No, they talk about, you understand, they don't have the same MO, if you will, the names I, I depict in, these, in my books, at least the two ones on time travelers, are very unique. You're not seeing that depicted anywhere else. So again, you're talking about a certain consistency, corroboration, if you will, which makes it more clear. You can't prove it. You can't prove anything. You can't prove that the, you know, how many how many scientific laws do we have? We have a lot of theories out there, but you, you really can't prove anything. For example, quantum mechanics, which is always my favorite science, one of the reasons because my scientific colleagues hate the field, they think it's too philosophical, but quantum physics, you know, drives people crazy in science because it says the presence of the observer affects the experiment and nothing happens unless you observe it. And therefore, it goes against every rule of conventional physics and conventional science that I was trained with in my undergraduate and graduate training. So the point is, is that um, we also have something known as your state of mind, if you will. The, one of the reasons why metaphysics or paranormal research, parapsychology, if you will, cannot be documented very well is because you have to be in the altered state to have the experience. So you can't document a Nostradamus progression or a futuristic mentality. You can't document out-of-body experiences, although actually they have done that to a degree at UCLA here by showing that planting elements or objects in a drop ceiling about 20 feet above the observer having a videotape and all of a sudden they tell you the following morning what was in the drop ceiling and there's no fudging involved. So that's an indirect form of corroboration. But in reality, you can't prove any of this. All you can do is get suggestive evidence. Reincarnation. CBS did a movie for television on my, my second book called The Search for Grace, a very documented case that occurred in 1927 in Buffalo, New York, about a woman who was attracted to, obsessively attracted to a man who tried to murder her on three different occasions. And uh, she not only corroborated the facts, but two of the major facts that she gave me were not corroborated by newspaper reports. As it turns out, when CBS did the investigation through their agents, she was right. The reporters made errors, and she couldn't possibly have known because in New York, you have to get the governor's permission and go through a paper trail to get to the actual facts of birth and death dates, which is what she was reporting that were incorrect by the reporters. That's suggestive evidence. It's a great case. It's one of the most documented cases in the last hundred years, but it's suggestive let's, evidence. Let's rewind for a moment here because we're going all over the map real quick. So I'm curious to know, Dr. Goldberg, how does one visually delineate between braided cable and hemp rope? What is the visual delineation and differentiation between a visual depiction of what you're calling braided cable and a twisted rope. How do you differentiate the two? Okay, well, first of all, the actual drawing itself does suggest, it's not just my opinion, it's the opinion of electronic uh, engineers and technicians who looked at this. But you have to look at the big picture. If it was just the braided cable or the hemp rope, whether they were smoking the rope after they did their hieroglyphics, you know, that's all fine. But you've got to add in other factors. Number one, 
you look at this, see, again, if you listen to that, it would be best for them if they could actually click on just Google Dendora, and, and you'll see it on there. What you will see is that so this Room 17 depiction shows a box uh, on the top of which the god Horus sits, and what you're getting here is this braided cable is attached to this box, if you will. Engineers have identified this portrayal as a bundle of conducting electrical wires, and then you have this Von de Graaff generator, if you will, uh, representing an insulated generator by elect electrical engineer analysis. You have the privyant not only of a Crookes tube illustrated by these two big giant look like light bulbs, but you also have a scientific experiment being illustrated. On the extreme left of this engraving, we see one television tube is operating normally because there's a serpent that's straight out. On the second tube located to the right of it, you see something is wrong and the serpent is bent inwards and there's a baboon holding a looks like a metal knife, which of course would generate a negative electrical effect if you put a metal object in front of electricity. So we have a scientific experiment. To buttress that argument, now you have the actual technicians, these two big giant like Egyptian bodyguards, if you will, whatever you want to call them, let's call them assistants or technicians. One of them to the left is wearing a headset. If you look at it closely, you'll see his ears and his eyes are covered by this like goggles and a headset. So now he's getting information from an ancient Egyptian producer to or a director telling him what to do. I mean, we have we have static electricity, a Von de Graaff generator. We have a Crookes tube. We have a braided cable. We have we we have a baboon showing an experiment. We have all these things added together. And my cute little remark is that you know critics won't accept this unless they see a TV guide and hieroglyphics here. But you show this picture depiction to any engineer or electronic technician, and he'll tell you that this is an electrical experiment. Now, what's more interesting about this to give more fodder for this is that we know that the Pyramid of Giza, for example, one of many pyramids, but the most well-known and the most well-constructed, had to have, elect have some sort of a lighting source internally to complete its construction. You can't build a pyramid of that size by just working in the dark. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene and Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for 1995, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for 1999 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com, hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page, just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me 
at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five. And that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Hi, I'm Paul Kimball, documentary filmmaker with the blog The Other Side of Truth, and you're listening to the Paracast with my pals David Biedney and Gene Steinberg. We're talking to Dr. Bruce Goldberg on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. He's author of a number of books, including his most recent, Egypt, an Extraterrestrial and Time Traveler Experiment. Okay, so you're showing us here something which we can't deny. There appears to be influence of higher technology in ancient times. But I'm still kind of muddied about the line of demarcation between this advanced technology and the cause for it. What causes it? Okay, well, well let's, let's look at uh, there's another example, which is more well-known now. This has been featured a lot on television, et cetera. Uh, the, the Egyptian temple wall in Abydos, and I'm sure you're familiar with that. Uh, Abydos shows a, a depiction of a helicopter, a UFO, and a stealth jet. And this Abydos wall panel, if you will, wasn't even seen the way it was is today when it was actually investigated about 30 years ago. Hieroglyphics or some other depiction was up over it, and it fell apart as it was being investigated, and it revealed these beautiful depictions. Now, I can understand the UFO being strictly, let's just say, extraterrestrial in origin. However, the helicopter and the stealth jet, you don't see, you, you don't see ET driving helicopters, and you sure don't see them doing, dealing with a stealth jet. What you see or have described of an ET is in either a cigar-shaped craft or the classical saucer, etc. And that's what makes it more than just an ET situation. And by the way, critics in this field, to tell you, I have people who have a lot less problems with time travel than with ETs, considering the, you know, the amount of time it would take for crafts to come from other planets, which, by the way, can be solved by what we know today as certain forms of hyperspace travel. So we can actually, you don't have to worry about going the speed of light and having the mass of the craft become ridiculously large and therefore making it impossible to travel. You can use forms of warp drive, such as the Alcubierre, I should say, warp drive system that was developed by Miguel Alcubierre, the Mexican physicist, that has been well documented, at least mathematical models. So you can actually go through many, many light years of space and time, if you will, in a, in a matter of a short period of time to get people from the Zeta Reticuli, 37 light years away or others, to our planet in a very short period of time. Well, of course, when one says a, th a physicist's theories versus a working practical version of a theory, those are two very different things. But I want to jump back for a moment again to something mm -hmm. else you said. Dr. Goldberg, which was that science couldn't make much use of proving things that are paranormal because they couldn't enter into altered states. Of course, the reality is that science can't disprove or prove things that are paranormal because of the fact that paranormal events 
tend not to be reproducible. Yeah, that's and, what I mean. Yeah, good. It well, has but, to be but, in alpha state for it to actually experience it. So it's not like you can have a physics experiment, a friction experiment. Of course you don't. Something where you of can, course you don't. Not at all. If there is a mass sighting of a UFO, it's not that all of those people are in an altered state. It's that there is an actual unexplained flying object in front of them. It's just you taking one example. Uh, if you have people that, two or three people that witness, let's say, an apparition, that doesn't necessarily mean that those people are in an altered state. I'm not saying it precludes that, but it certainly doesn't require it. Then when you have things like electronic voice phenomenon, those are not relative to any sort of an altered state. Those are electronic captures of some sort of atmospheric incident. So Absolutely. In fact, you can take a tape recorder, go to a graveyard, and you're going to get EVP if you're patient enough. Just any inexpensive tape recorder can do it. But this is what I'm talking about. How about people who perceive departed loved ones, ghosts, if you will, spirits? How about near-death experiences and other forms of out-of-body experiences? Those you have to be in the alpha state, what we would call an altered state, even though it is natural and therefore you can't just scientifically replicate that. Psychic intonations of all kinds, progressions, uh, using any form of, uh, you know, playing with runes or tarot cards or whatever you're doing, anything you're doing that, that involves uh, ESP, if you will, the sixth sense, uh, those kinds of things are not replicable so easily because you have to be in that state. It's very subjective rather than objective. Science wants to make everything objective. Most of this field is unfortunately subjective. That, that's my point. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, along those lines, of course, we also have to t- keep in mind that we have to differentiate between a technology and an altered state. Those are two very different things. And as far as altered states, certainly science has had a good amount of experience inducing altered states via use of different types of chemistry and chemicals. I mean, let's remember, the brain is a big electrochemical computer. And so if you alter the, the chemical makeup of the brain, you can indeed induce all sorts of stuff. I mean, there has been some research recently that has suggested uh, that even things like near-death experiences can often be the result of a deprivation of oxygen to the brain. Well, see, now, now you bring up a perfect point. Let, let me, I have to stop you there because this is very critical. You understand? Okay. I've been dealing with this for a long time. A very good friend of mine, Ray, Ray Moody, you know, uh, documented this, sure. you know, the first core experience of near-death experience, and he's been mm-hmm. through a lot more houses about this than I. But let me show you what the – you talk about cerebral anoxia is a term that's used. And cerebral right. anoxia simply states that uh, – and, again, if you deal with any medical expert, they'll tell you this. Cerebral anoxia is fine, except when you have cerebral anoxia, which simply means you're cutting off the blood blood supply to the brain. That's what the cerebral part refers to. When you do that, you go unconscious, which means you don't have any memories. You don't have any brain activity that you're going to be able to recall, and that's case closed. Another interesting thing is that when people have had near-death experience, and Ray points this out in some of his subsequent work, as well as Michael Sabon from Atlanta, cardiologist who also deals with near-death experiences, at least documenting them, you have people that have flat EEGs. That means you're dead clinically. There's no argument anywhere in this country about a flat EEG, electroencephalograph. Well, guess what? When they do have a flat EEG, those beautiful instruments that the that are used in ORs, they time you. They'll say from 1.58 p.m. to 2.07, this person had a flat EEG. What happens is during that time, the person who's revived later will then give you the near-death experience, overview the OR, and report activities that were done between the time they had a flat EEG. 
see. Medically, that's impossible. Even if there was some fantasy, if there was some whatever's going on, there'd be some blip on the screen, and that would not be a flat EEG. So we have examples of where people have broken the rules of, well, gee, maybe that was just some sort of a cerebral anoxia, which, of course, is amnesia anyway. Another case that Ray points out in one of his books is that a woman who was blind for 50 years in her life described the color-coded instruments that we used to revive her. This woman is blind. She was like 70 years old. How could she possibly, even if she was cheating and peeped her eyes open, how could she possibly get the color-coded instruments that we used to revive her in the OR? So, you see, these are examples of science will say, well, 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 and they'll try to, in the usual skeptical, negative way, try to rationalize it, but they can't. No one can rationalize these kinds of examples. And, again, they're subjective. We can't make them objective so that the average person can do it, replicating the same control, if you will, or the same experimental conditions as you would in a regular scientific experiment. These are subjective, and you never have to, never underestimate the field of subjectivity, which, of course, drives scientists crazy, but we have to deal with the reality. So I'm not talking about physical equipment like with EVP or the brain waves that are measured when you're in an out-of-body experience or meditation or all the alpha levels. That's all fine. I'm talking about personal experiences that a person can relate to that cannot be explained or, or rationalized away medically or neurologically and in fact are, are very accurate and in fact are, are documented all over the world. I mean, progression is a good example. Here, here's, here's an example when, when I would get people to say, how do you know this stuff isn't all just yada yada? Back in 1996, a classic case of mine, a woman, I'll call her Tammy, not her real name. She graduated from college. She lives in New York City. She wants to come to Los Angeles to my office to work on going out of the body. She knows that my work with that and wants to be trained to go out of the body. And, of course, I said, fine. When you go out of the body, you are now in the space-time continuum, which means all events, past, present, and future, are simultaneous. While she's in, in town for the week in, in L.A., she's seeing things that occur a day in advance or two days in advance that come true while she's here, which is, you know, she's getting very good at it and, and leaving the body and, and doing these age progressions, if you will. She goes home and she tells me, now this is 1996, she goes home and I said, you're all fine, you're, you're done, you're going to go to Europe next in the summer, enjoy yourself, you know, have a nice life. She calls me up about three weeks later, the end of June, and she goes, doctor, this is Tammy, I have an emergency. And I said, Tammy, look, I retired from dentistry to get away from that, what's going on? And she says, well, I did your techniques, you use your, you know, your tapes, your CDs, whatever, and I went out of the body and I see myself, I'm going to go to Paris next month and join my friends who are going to hang around for six weeks and go to grad school. I see myself taken up at JFK in the plane. Plane goes up, crashes, I die. What do I do? And I said, Tammy, I don't want to change your life or run your life. I believe in psychic empowerment. Just change your flight and give me a call at the end of the summer. She calls me up around Labor Day, just before Labor Day, and she says, this is Tammy. I want you to know that I had a great trip in Europe, and she told me something that I never want to hear from a patient, which is you saved my life, which, of course, I didn't do. And I said, what's going on? She was going to go on TWA Flight 800. July 17th, 1996, 230 people are on the astral plane because of that, and she would have been 231 had she not, by herself and her own higher self and her own powers of the universe, perceived a catastrophe and avoided it by going into the future and seeing a real event. Hmm. That's progression. When you were talking about the people that you've hypnotized and how they all reported similar dates or exact dates, as you were saying, how would all these people report 3050 as the year that time travel is invented. I assume you're referring to 
people who you specifically have hypnotized and progressed. Is that correct? No, actually, it's both. People, these are people that had contacted me. When I was doing my research, I would, uh, first of all, I train people. They can actually contact time travelers. And if your listeners go to my site, there's a fifth dimensional travel exercise. And there are several exercises on the site, which are also described in the book. They can learn how to contact these uh, double T's, as I call them, themselves. First of all, these were reported by people who did not work with me. They reported it independently via emails and faxes, whatever. Then I work with people. And these are people that were living in Australia, South America, Europe, all over the world because I have an international practice. Then I said to myself, okay, I kept those on file. Then I would work with people who did not who did not share this material with. I wasn't discussing this on the air or any of that stuff until very late, until like 1998, 99. Then all of a sudden I'm working with people who are corroborating that material which is not being shared. Okay, I purposely kept it from the public until I got enough information, enough corroboration to make it relevant. Then to add icing to the cake and not getting cavities or gaining weight, since as a retired dentist I can use those metaphors, I personally communicated with these time travelers. And that's where some of the material also is reported in the book of my own corroboration of what people have been telling me on what these time travelers have been telling me. So therefore, I've got three different sources. My patients who I work with, people who never saw me, just to use techniques, and then my own interaction or corroboration with the uh, fifth dimensional travelers that we call time travelers. Now, of course, when you make a statement that you're communicating with time travelers, certainly our listeners would like to know how you can corroborate or substantiate that, because that's a very big claim. Well, of course it is. And the way they can do that is very simply this. I, they can do that themselves and corroborate the material. For example, if they think I'm either misrepresenting the material, making it up, or doing whatever, people are welcome to their opinion. But if they do their own communication of a time travel, especially if they haven't read all the details of my work, they'll be able to get the same information. They'll be able to corroborate the material that I'm reporting because it comes from the same source. These time travelers do not lie. They don't play games with us. These aren't lower astral entities from the lower astral trying to play games with us, like a psychic attack, if you will. These are real, true, very positive spiritual beings. Think of an astronaut today without the usual problems. Think of a very spiritually evolved astronaut, and now you've got a chrononaut. And, of course, they're from 1,000 to 3,000 years in the future. Their self-interest, by the way, everybody's got self-interest. Here's the self-interest of a time traveler. They are us in the future. The better off we are, which is why they interact with us, the better off the future will be for them. Now, granted, there are parallel universes, and that's a whole different topic. So, therefore, you, you can have parallel universes where there are nuclear wars going on, and there are, by the way, out there. But we don't have to worry about that because they're not in our universe. But the, the time travelers know that the better off they assist us in our not just technological but our spiritual growth because that's their main interest. Their main interest is in helping us with the ascension mechanism. That's the bottom line to everything. Everything else is irrelevant. I mean, it's nice to do things. You have a career. You get your message out. You're an activist. You, you have a karmic purpose, you take care of your family, that's all fine. People do it. I'm not saying live under a freeway ramp and read Plato all day long, but if you do any of these things and sacrifice your own spiritual growth, such as breaking universal laws, people who violate all kinds of things, lying and cheating and doing anything for money and power and all the usual stuff that society has been on through ever, if you study the history of civilization, written history going back 6,000 years, there's one element that stays consistent. And you know what that is? It's a three-letter word. It's called War. Hey, before we proceed with war and anything else we have to talk about.
Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. You're in the You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We are talking to Dr. Bruce Goldberg and, amongst other things, lots of books to his credit. He has Egypt, an extraterrestrial and time traveler experiment. And now we're kind of spreading from the influence of the past into being able to see future lives and everything. And one thing we've discussed here on the Paracast, and it concerns me every time we talk about something like this, is the area of deception, where you communicate with what are supposed to be higher powers, or they claim to be higher powers, but what they tell you isn't true. I'll give you an example. They will say, for example, and this has been documented in the UFO field, where they tell you there's going to be a sighting, thus and so, and so you see the sightings. And finally, you become so confident in this that you then announce it to the press, your friends, your business associates. There's going to be a sighting noon tomorrow on the mountaintop in the east side of town. It never happens. The question is here, even if some being says to you in a dream state or whatever this is true how do you know it's true well I'm glad you brought that's a great point and I appreciate that I wrote a book called Protected by the Light where I talk about what's called the Black Brotherhood and please folks this is not a racial blur this is the literature this is the scientific literature of archaeology etc and what that means is that we're on the earth plane let's use it that way and I don't know I'm assuming your listeners are more sophisticated about metaphysics this is let's say the three dimensions that we can see the fourth dimension is considered time which is actually the fourth dimension of the space-time continuum. Anything beyond the fourth dimension is considered to be the fifth dimension, the space-time continuum, such as the astral plane where people go and they cross into spirit. On the astral plane, you have an upper and a lower. The lower is what we're talking about here. The lower is made up of lower astral entities who are very jealous of us. They hate us. They want to torture us and use us and jerk us around, so to speak. And what you're talking about is the game is being played by these little imps, and they're more than just imps. They're pretty nasty entities. Now, wait, 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 wait. How do we know this? You're telling us that there's a lower astral plane and we have imps there. How do we know this? Well, not only is it my own research going back for 33 years, but there aren't that many books written on psychic attack that's true. But if you go back into the literature, you go back to Dion Fortune in 1930, you you go back to all the old literature and all the old, uh, going back at least 150 years, you'll read about, and of course the Indian literature going back a couple of thousand years, if not more, the Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads. You talk about the Egyptian Book of the Dead. You talk about the Tibetan Book of the Dead. There's a lot of, uh, you could call those religious scriptures, but they also have certain metaphysical, if you will, synchrony and, and consistency in their terms and in their uh, depictions of the different dimensions. Uh, we, we name them differently occasionally, but the principle is still the same. There is a dimension out there, a very nasty one. We call it the lower astral in the West. They call it various things. Bardo is what the Tibetans call them. The Christians call them purgatory, which is a, a plagiarism of Bardo. And uh, basically, it's a nasty dimension. So you 
you can call it anything you want, but it's been reported forever. This is Watley Law of Evidence again. It's reported every culture and most of the cultures throughout the world, throughout history, have re reported, if you will, the equivalent of the lower astral plane. The Native Americans called it the underworld. The Greeks called it the underworld, too. It's all the Romans that they stole from the Greeks. So, and they, they stole it from the Egyptians. So the point is, is that just assume for a moment that there's fifth-dimensional entities out there that aren't our best friends. If my time traveler contacts, if you will, are an example of that, and that's really what you were alluding to, and that's fine, I entertain that, then how come the message is spirituality, not go out and put all your money on 36 red in Las Vegas and lose your shirt, or, or not saying things that don't occur. When these time travelers tell you things, they occur. They're not trying to play games. They're not trying to make people cheat the system and be, win a lottery ticket, but when they do give advice or do give certain instructions or can act as guardian angels, and they do, by the way, they can save people's lives. They can cure cancer. They can stop you from falling off a mountaintop if they want because they travel in the fifth dimension where they're invisible to our three-dimensional eyes. They never do anything that's negative. They're like a dolphin. Do you ever hear a bad story about a dolphin? Okay. They save us from sharks. They, they risk their lives for us, and people eat them in the, in the Polynesian islands, but you never hear of a dolphin attacking people. So the time travelers are equivalent to that. You never hear a bad story. Now, you can hear bad stories about ETs, especially the reptilians, and especially the Lyrans, a very genetic group, which is really not on our side at all. But you don't hear. So there's enough of these stories going back to 25 years of my research where they had ample opportunity to play games and to jerk us around, so to speak, and I have never had one incident of that. Granted, most people don't know they're dealing with a time travel unless they specifically maintain a long, detailed mono-on-mono -mono communication because they're not going to say, by the way, my name is Tatos and I'm from the 31st century, so let's have a talk. They don't often do that unless you specifically communicate with them and show your seriousness and, and they realize it's not going to interfere with your karmic cycle or scare you, if you will. But um, these time travel communications, and I've, uh, shall we say, been exposed to them literally hundreds of times now, they've all had a positive ending, if you will, or a positive attribution. So therefore, I would, I would say that we're not talking about the equivalent of what lower astrals are doing, who may masquerade as your late grandmother and give you spiritual advice, but in reality trying to hurt you. Well, of course, another way to parse the idea of a time traveler promoting spirituality, one way to, to, to parse that and look at that and to interpret that is that beings are asking us to be loving and open. Loving and open is the exact opposite of careful and guarded. So when one is loving and open and open to things, uh, there is no differentiation there between open to good things or bad things. Being open, of course, makes us be open to suggestion, which in turn allows us to be controlled. So when you're saying, the when you're, you're putting forward this idea that they are trying to get us to be more spiritual, one has to, I think, be a little careful about that because the fact that when we talk about spirituality, it's a sense of being accepting, being trusting. And as anybody who's ever been accepting and trusting of someone who requires or asks for that and then turns on them can tell you, very often that can turn out to be dangerous, problematic. So, again, we're talking about human beings right now. Here and now in the current time, certainly one could look at all of the spiritual beings who follow Sylvia Brown and believe that she is spiritually positive when, in fact, she's the equivalent of a psychic vampire. So, 
again, there has to be some. Right, but, but, but David, as you make your premise is false. And let, let, let me show you what I am not. Let me tell you what I'm not saying. Okay? What I am not saying, and neither are the time travelers, by the way. What I am not saying is naivety or gullibility. The time travelers focus in on the, what, one of the reasons why I, I'm not going to say I'm only singled out. There are other reports of time travel. So I'm not the only one in the world who's done this. Maybe I've documented them in two very detailed books. But my message in life is psychic empowerment. And by the way, the time travelers like that. In fact, they represent that. Well, let me tell you what that, that means. Psychic empowerment means the psychic is using your, uh, shall we say, your fifth dimensional, your alpha brainwaves, your subconscious, your invisible energy, positivity, your soul's energy, if you will, to empower yourself to take charge of your life. Time travelers don't sit there and say, take everything verbatim and listen to me, I am your God, or, or I am going to tell you what to do. They advise us. This is like, you know, advising consent from the Senate, you know, to the president here. You're the president here. They inform you. They want you to be empowered. They don't want you to just blindly. I've never had a contact or any of my patients to pick where they were being led down the primrose path other than these uh, energy vampires or what do you, what do you want to call them, the lower okay, entities. Okay, okay, but let's That's look at time travel. Let's look at time travel. Now, okay. what about the so-called time travel paradox, which is that if you change the past, which you might be doing by going to the past and influencing what people do there, you're changing the future. Every little thing you do could have an impact on the future, and you might change the wrong thing. The person from the 33rd century or something goes back in time, and he changes the wrong thing, or she changes the wrong thing, and guess what? They don't exist anymore. What about that well, actually, travel paradox? That, that, that's the old grandfather paradox, too. If you go back in time and kill your grandfather, are you Michael J. Fox and is your hand and the rest of your body disappearing? But we have to understand two words to explain that, and those two words are parallel universe. Now, just for your listeners and, and maybe for your own sake, too, parallel universes get a lot of science fiction hits, if you will, and a lot of attention. Parallel universes are real. They're mathematically, they were, they were depicted, Einstein knew about them in 1905 when he developed his theory of relativity, and the, the quantum physicists and, and the Copa Hagen Convention in 1926 when quantum mechanics was first really set up as a form of science. They all knew about that. Hugh Everett III of Princeton University in 1957 was the first one to talk about the many worlds phenomena documented parallel universes from a scientific mathematical model point of view. Now, this is what happens in time travel. And by the way, hyperspace physicists, Kip Thorne from Caltech in Pasadena, Stephen Hawking in Cambridge, they'll all document this. They'll support this concept. If you travel back in time, and by the way, the mathematical models for traveling back in time, Kip Thorne in 1988, wrote an article in the Physical Review Letters, which is a physics journal. He wrote that for Carl Sagan because they were good friends, and Carl Sagan, when he wrote Contact, he wanted to make it the novel, which became a movie, wanted to make it technically accurate, so he asked Kip to do the mathematical models for time travel by enlarging wormholes, which is exactly the way time travel uh, was discovered or will be discovered in a thousand years. But be that as it may, what happens is that when you go back in time, let's say you had a little time machine, forget about the wormhole and the wormhole linear accelerator which is what they'll use in a thousand years. Let's say you go back in time to a hundred years ago, okay, give or take. What you're doing is you're not traveling back to the same universe you left off. You're actually traveling to a parallel universe. The closest sister universe, according to the Scientific American, which is a very detailed and very quality magazine. It's been out for 150 years, very technical, but it's for the lay public. According to the August 2000 issue, pages 62 to 69 of that issue, where they discuss parallel universe, their cover story, the closest sister universe is less than a millimeter away. Do you know how small a millimeter is? It's real small, isn't it? 
Okay, that's how close the nearest sister universe is, but it has no effect on us right now. We don't have there's a parallel universe. Okay, so therefore the time travelers are not from a future time; they're from another universe. Actually, it could be both. They're definitely from the future. But what happens? But my point here is that when they travel back in time, let's say they're going to say, "Let's change a major event." Now, we're not talking about the assassination of Lincoln, or you know, things like that would have a humongous paradox to the future. But let's say that there was a person who was going to die, a person that isn't super famous, a certain a person that isn't so significant to the universe as we would call it, some event, and they decide to change that event, that's going to affect only that parallel universe. They can then carry that forward in that parallel universe as think of it as like a, a simulation, if you will, like you know, training a pilot here, and they can see what happens. And if the results are good, then they can apply to our universe, our parallel universe. So they have a way of testing the system before they mess it up. So therefore, these paradoxes people are worried about is really not an issue. Can you imagine, even think, even fantasize what the technology is going to be like in 50 years, let alone a thousand and fifty years? These people are really sophisticated. They can do things like, they have something called quantum medicine. Let me give you an example of future technology. Well, no, Bert, you, Dr. Goldberg, before yeah. you do that, i got to okay. slow you down for a minute. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits hi this is timothy green beckley otherwise known as mr ufo reporting live for the conspiracy journal and we have a special offer for the listeners of the paracast want to receive our publication for free Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net you're in the paracast with gene steinberg and david bietney you never know what's going to happen next On the Paracast, we're talking to Dr. Bruce Goldberg, and he's author of Egypt, an Extraterrestrial and Time Traveler Experiment by Dr. Bruce Goldberg, of course, one of many books he's written. This is his latest. And we're talking about interactions between Earth people and not necessarily extraterrestrials, but time travelers, and that raises a lot of questions. David? Well, let's go to the future time traveler who comes back in time to experiment with changing the outcome of an alternate universe. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you said, Dr. Goldberg, they come back, they can mess around with that alternate universe to see what's going to happen. What about the future time travelers in that alternate universe? Are we to believe that they will stand by and watch 
their universe, their reality be decimated by a time traveler from an alternate universe? Is every universe not in and of itself valid and wanting to preserve itself? Well, of course they are, but you have to understand, this is this is, gets to be a lot more complicated, but let, let me try to uh, break mm-hmm. it down a little bit simply. Number one, time travel will be discovered in the 31st century, approximately the year 3050, give or take. Now, there are time travelers, my research shows, that go all the way up to the year 5000 AD, which is 2,000 years ahead of that. So, of course, they're being monitored by their, shall we say, superiors. A time traveler from the 34th century and 35th century is going to be far superior in their knowledge and technology than somebody from the 31st century who was basically a rookie, if you will, in time travel. So, of course, they monitor it. See, you're assuming that by changing a certain event, you're going to destroy or really significantly hamper the future. On the contrary, usually it betters it. This isn't like the old science fiction novel where somebody, you know, goes back in time to the dinosaurs and has a leaf on their foot or kills a butterfly and comes back and it's a Twilight Zone episode where all of a sudden now there's a fascist dictatorship instead of democracy in America, this kind of thing. Forget that. Those are science fiction novels, which are cute for television, but the reality of it is they have devices there. They can monitor and see. It's almost like a computer simulation. They know pretty much what's going to happen. And if there was an error, let's say the guy messed up. Let's say the rookie from 3050. Let's say Tatos, the guy who discovers time travel, will discover it. That's his name. Let's say he messes up and he says, you know, my math is wrong and I did this change and it's going to mess it up. The time traveler from three or 400 years after him, if you will, can go back and easily prevent that. They have devices and, and mentalities where they can uh, they can fix, if you will, an element of that, that is incorrect in the parallel universe. They have something called the timeline sequence scanner, which allows you to uh, view past events in parallel universes. All right, look, and, look, and look. All, all right, we're, we're getting a complete laundry list of everything they're going to be doing a 1,000 years from now, 1,500 years from now. Hmm? Okay, where's the proof for this? Other than anecdotal reports of people who remember past life experiences or are regress and are recalling things that happen in the future, where's your proof? It's not necessarily that we have advanced technology a few thousand years ago because there are other possible causes for that. So where's the proof that we have these time travelers and they're doing all this stuff because they tell us? Well, again, this is the example of how patient are you because obviously none of this is going to happen right now. The anecdotal evidence you're talking about, this is a subjective experience. If you want to prove, if you will, that in, by the 35th century, teleportation will be used as a mode of time travel rather than enlarging wormholes and causing all kinds of problems by causing terrorism in the space-time continuum, which is what happens. You can't prove that. This is, again, a subjective experience. You could have your own independent observations of that, but that becomes subjective from your end, and therefore, who died and may you God is the mentality here. So I told you, you cannot prove this. All you can do is give suggestive evidence. All I can say here to you and the listeners out there is that because of the corroboration from many people with no contact whatsoever, the Watley's Law of Evidence mentality, you have the situation where, you know, you can accept it or not. James' law applies here. You know, the William James, the famous psychologist from 100 plus years ago, said there's always enough evidence to get the activists all excited, but never enough evidence to convince the skeptics of any paranormal phenomena. When it comes to paranormal phenomena, for example, UFOs, we have mass sightings, we have certain pieces of compelling photographic evidence, we have certain 
incidents where there is radar corroboration and pilot corroboration. When it comes to spiritual entities, we do have, at this point, a fairly good body of evidence. Some of it, of course, is more suspect versus other parts of it. But there is evidence. And again, these things are not necessarily subjective. I would submit that certainly for UFOs and for spiritual entities, we can prove to certain, even I'll say scientifically objective pieces of evidence. The McMinnville photographs of the UFO have been subject to scientific scrutiny and they pass. So again, when it comes to certain types of paranormal phenomena, when we talk about faith healing, and we have Arigo in Brazil in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. We have about a million and a half people who were cured by the guy. We have people who have gone on the record saying, yes, this man cured me. And but that's not proof. That's an anecdotal evidence. You don't have, look, here's the problem. I am an activist in this field. I am a protagonist towards UFOs, to time travelers, and paranormal events. I also recognize the phonies and the, the Manila Filipino surgeons, you know, the psychic surgeons. That was, oh, the, absolutely. The, sure. But here's the problem. In the UFO, yes, I like those. Guess what? You get, and this is what you alluded to earlier, which we didn't discuss, which I'd like to, and that is the disinformation agents. You will get guys like Bruce McAbee who will disavow every single photograph by using his fancy little government paid for corporate overlord government slash paid for equipment to show oh look this couldn't possibly be a UFO because of the blank where is the body they're going to say show me E.T. phone home I want to see his little body not the alien autopsy which was a scam I want to see the actual body it's like trying to say Bigfoot exists but wherever they die and we know they die because they're you know they're animals we don't have a body of Bigfoot or, or, or the Chessie monster or any of the others the problem is we don't have the hard core UFO craft. We don't have the body. Now, of course, I do think we do. The government in Dulce, New Mexico, by underground bases, etc., just ain't open to the public. But the point is, is that in the UFO field, if you will, we don't have the actual physical proof that will convince the skeptics, who, of course, by definition, won't be convinced no matter what you do. You know, the old rule of thumb about a skeptic, if a UFO lands in the backyard, they want to bury it and hope nobody sees it land. You know, that kind so, of mentality. Bruce, you're saying that Dr. Matt Maccabee is a disinformation agent. Well, what I'm saying is that he conveniently disavows every single photograph I've ever seen him evaluate. And, and to me, really, so I, the I, book I, I have a lot. I have a lot of problems with the with the, with, the, with the, It's sort of like let it, David respond. To, We've had Doctor Maccabee on well, the let's, show. Let's. How about Bruce? The book UFOs are real, where Doctor Maccabee puts forward a wide range of photographs that he has certified as being genuinely unexplained, and he supports as being not ours. What about that? That's fine, except that, number one, he won't get his colleagues to support that, and he doesn't state that. What he'll state is that, well, I can't explain this. Not explaining it is not the same thing as certifying that this is extraterrestrial in origin. How do you certify it, for heaven's sake? How, how can you, you certify, certify it? it? Right. Well, again, All David, Dr. McDevitt does is state that they're not ours. No one, no one has ever been able to absolutely certify that an unexplained object in the air is extraterrestrial. We don't well, know that. What we know is that they're not ours. Okay, now, that, that, again, that's fine. That's not ours from our current mentality, and that's fine. This is what would explain things. This is what would support and, and make the skeptics a lot more, shall we say, less listened to by the general public, is if you had, you know, some of the Roswell medals from New Mexico from the crash in 1947, if you had some bodies that weren't made up by some Hollywood special effects guy, if you had something like that, metals 
particles that are that have no origin from the earth, that the components, if you will, are totally non-earth in origin, as well as a physical body or two, then we don't have to worry about photographs and anecdotal evidence. And believe me, I want to see that. I do think that, that the underground bases and that, that various different little places around this planet, you know, have these. It's just that we, they're, they're being hidden by us because of the usual paranoid government mentality. So my point is, is that I'd love to have it. I am an activist in that, except that we don't have the physical proof, at least that's available, for us to really say, hey, look, this is great. Here's the proof. Now let's move on to the next thing. I don't know when we're going to get it, but we're not going to get it real soon, according to the, the information I'm getting from my patients and, and the progressions involved. I'd like to just, you know, focus in on this. We can't, you're looking for things like how can we prove time travel doesn't exist. You can have all the interactions. They're not going to go on CNN. They'll be taken out by a man in black in a New York minute, so that's not going to happen. They're not going to identify themselves and put themselves in jeopardy. So obviously it's all going to be anecdotal, subjective, and that's the only thing you're going to get from this field. I mean, there are men in black out there. They will kill people. I mean, oh, you, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, now, now we're getting another claim. We do have reports of men in black. They could be disinformation agents, whatever. Where have they killed anybody? Where is this documented? How do you know this? Well, you know, this is, this is interesting. Everybody knows who Ian Fleming is, don't you? Right? You know, mm-hmm. James Bond, author, right? Sure. Right? He had a history of working for the, the Secret Service in Britain in World War II. The guy was a very interesting guy. Well, guess what? He died of a heart attack in 1964 on the uh, anniversary, by the way, of the Philadelphia experiment. By the way, he was investigating the Philadelphia experiment. He was also investigating the Kennedy assassination. People don't know that. He was very actively involved. And his death, his heart attack, do you know how easy it is to fake a heart attack by murder, especially in 1964? Well, his death was a very, very unusual circumstance. Another unusual circumstance, we can't prove this. Okay, all right, just because we, all right, I agree with you. You can certainly fake a heart attack, and certainly poisons can do that. But how do we know that Ian Fleming died prematurely because of some outside influence, and how do we know they were men in black? Now, there could be a lot of causes for that. Maybe he had an ex-wife who didn't like him. <laughs> you know, there's so no, many reasons. Like, so many how his ex, his, his, the guy smoked, the guy drank, the guy was an alcoholic, but he had a lifestyle that was, uh, you know, he was a, a good old boy. All right, that's all fine. But isn't it interesting how all the stresses in his life happened to have given in right in the middle of his investigation of the Kennedy assassination and the Philadelphia experiment? Another man who was also died in 1973, who was involved with the Philadelphia experiment, in fact, very involved, was Ivan T. Sanderson. Do you know that name? I knew Ivan T. Sanderson, okay? You knew him. I okay, knew him. well, I wish I knew him. This, this guy was the kind of person I want to have okay, over the one Halloween thing, here. though, the one thing I'll tell you about Ivan T. Sanderson, sometimes he could pull a stunt a little bit. I'll just leave it at that. And I know yeah, people let, let, who let, knew let, Ivan. Let, okay, your audience now, your audience will get the wrong impression. Ivan T. Anderson was very good friends and knew very well Morris K. Jessup. There's your Philadelphia experiment guy, big time. Morris K. Jessup wrote the book about the case of the UFOs, the one that had the annotations that was looked upon by the Navy intelligence, and conveniently Morris K. Jessup was found supposedly committing suicide in 1958 in his car by, you know, the carbon monoxide, blah, blah, blah. There is an example of it. You want men in black, a men in black. I remember, okay, I'm old enough to remember who Morris K. Jessup was. I read his books, The Case for the UFO, The Expanding Case for the UFO. Mm-hmm. I have seen the, a photocopy of the annotated edition mm-hmm. of The Case for the UFO by this Carl Allen who kind Allende. of admitted, or Allende, he referred to himself in both yeah, ways. Right. And to some degree, he may have been a prankster, and to some degree, 
people think that, and he kind of hinted that himself when he was contacted. Now, let's take a look at that entire thing. I also, and I don't know if you read the books on the subject by Charles Berlitz, I gave a copy of that to Charles Berlitz when he was doing his research for the book back in the 1970s, the sequel to The Bermuda Triangle. Okay, I gave... Charles, I was a very good friend of his. My wife and I visited him in his home on a number of occasions. I spent hours getting my free lunch from him because he could afford to get me a free lunch. But I also spent a lot of time with Charles Burles giving him information for his books. And the annotated edition of The Case for the UFO was one of those things. It doesn't mean you necessarily can take it seriously. And it doesn't follow that the men in black killed Morris K. Jessup. Maybe they did, but it it doesn't follow. It would follow if if you complete the story and focus that how come the naval intelligence people, how come those good old boys with their lead bottom sitting in Washington, D.C., made many copies of Jessup's book, okay? Well, actually, one they... company made copies, the so-called Vero edition, but, you know, at that particular point in time, we don't know why they did it, but we don't know that those men in black came out and said, you know what, we're going to get rid of M.K. Jessup because he knows too much, because you've got to look at this, for example. If yeah that was connected to any kind of government operation, and you want to keep information about UFOs secret, why would you do away with him? Did he have any knowledge that was really that important other than this particular thing? Well, kill Carl Allen, because he's the guy who's responsible, or Carlos Salende, if you want to use the name that he adopted. If you really want to kill somebody, why not kill him? He survived for many years after that. We're just about to break for the halfway period in our interview with Dr. Bruce Goldberg, and we're trying to cover a lot of the ramifications of the things he's talking about in his book, Egypt, an Extraterrestrial and Time Traveler Experiment. And we'll be back in the second hour of the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. On part two of the Paracast, we are talking to Dr. Bruce Goldberg, author of a number of books, including Eat Egypt, an Extraterrestrial and Time Traveler Experiment. In part one, at the end of part one, I was questioning Dr. Goldberg about how we could possibly connect the death of M.K. Jessup to the possible intervention by so-called men in black. You want to respond to what I was saying? Sure. First of all, Allende, Carlos Allende, or Carl Allen, when you do the investigation on him, he becomes more and more of a cartoon character and a joke. But who wasn't a cartoon character was the researcher Morris K. Jessup. So therefore, if the military or the men in black, government, whatever you want to call it, the shadow government, whoever's involved here, if they want to get rid of somebody, they don't care about Allende. He's a cartoon. If they know that any detailed investigation is going to show his his little cartoon activities. What they don't like are people who are doing real good quality investigations. Morris K. Jessup, Ian Fleming, Ivan T. Sanderson. These are people who don't give up. They're like a, uh, a bulldog, you know, with a piece of meat there. They don't give up. It would be like saying that Lee Harvey Oswald was the sole shooter of John F. Kennedy. Okay? Now, does anybody really think out there that there wasn't a conspiracy? American House of Representatives conceded that there was a conspiracy, or at least that there was more than one shooter. Back in 1970, 
1978 in a very diluted, milk-toast investigation, but even they assumed that they concluded that there was more than one shooter. So there are people who work. By the way, there's four kinds of men in black. It's not just government agents. Government agents in our current government, if you will, and all throughout history have done this. They also cover up a lot of the material like, you know, the crooks do from ancient Egypt, etc., why we don't have those here. Uh, you also have the Black Brotherhood from the lower astral plane, if you will. They function as men in black. You also have ETs from our current century, but from different planets who come here and also try to cover up evidence, if you will, of their own mentality, at least their colleagues. And then you have time travelers from the future. There is a certain small sect that aren't here for our spiritual growth. They're men in black. They try to cover up any activity done by time travelers or ETs or anything else that isn't politically correct, and they will kill a time traveler. And they have devices to detect where they are, which is why a time traveler spends most of their time in the fifth dimension where they can't be seen by us, but they also can't be detected by the men in black. Some of them are government agents. The ones that work for our current government, if you will, the Air Force mostly, represent the current form of the men in black, the ones that you see on, you know, depicted on Hollywood. Uh, then the Black Brotherhood, of course, you, you can't put an ID or social security number on them. They are simply just ETs who try to just cover up because that's who they are. They just don't want anybody to know what's going on. They're in league, of course, with the government. You have to understand that the technology that we have today, if people think it's because of your tax dollars or because of the corporate overlords, as you guys like to describe, forget it. That's nice, but uh, the real reality about where we get our technology, computers and iPods and all this kind of stuff, comes from ETs and time travelers. Basically, they, the government has made their packs. They've uh, sold their soul to the ETs, not to time travel so much in that capacity, but the ETs, and they said, you can do some of the abductions, you know, create a treaty of 1954, Eisenhower, and we want the technology, okay? We want to learn how to go to outer space. We want to learn how to increase our communication skills, blah, blah, blah. And that's where the men in black come in. So you have those government agents, you have the Black Brotherhood, then you have ETs, and then, of course, you have the time travels from our future, a certain police force, if you will, that moderate and, and shall we say, oversee, if you will, the functions of time travels as long as they're not making themselves obvious and as long as they're not doing something that will initiate investigation and the public being aware of the actual time travels themselves, they leave them alone. And if they can't detect them, they can't detect them. But there are men in black and they're big time. And for example, there was a federal law that was passed called Title 14, Section 1211 of the Code of Federal Regulations, which was known as the ET Act. This law, by the, our government, by the way, does not concede, in fact, denies that there are any extraterrestrials or UFOs officially. The U.S. Air Force, any part of Washington, D.C., any part of the Department of Defense will absolutely flatly deny like you wouldn't believe. Yet, in 1969, July 16, specifically, they passed this ridiculous fascist law that's called the ET law that says that contact between a U.S. citizen and an ET or their vehicles was illegal and punishable by a $5,000 fine. You would be imprisoned by a NASA official with no right rid of habeas corpus, which means you couldn't have a hearing, you couldn't have a judge, you couldn't have your lawyer go in there. It's like the way we treat terrorists today or terrorist suspects. And in fact, it was up to the NASA official when you were released. This law was repealed by George Bush Sr. in 1991, April 16th. For 22 years, this ridiculous fascist law was on the books to show you where the government's attitude was about ETs and their crafts. So this is an example of, of the double-sided aspect of the, of the government. You have, at least when it comes to the men in black, the Air Force has been mostly known for their men in black, if you will, because of the depiction. Uh, you have especially the Air Force Special Activity Center called AFSAC, specifically the 1127th Field Activities Group. 
has been well-known and alleged government collaborator uh, William Moore has made that public many times over the last 25, 30 years. But then why should uh, we believe William Moore? Let's just stop with William Moore. William Moore well, admits that he's done that, disinformation, so why do you believe him or Richard Doty or any of these characters who have come forth in the UFO field and they've made claims and counterclaims, and we've had that all through the years. How do we know, for example, the men in black are really from the Air Force or not well, from we, the we, NSA we, we, or not from the secret government or not from the Bilderbergers? Okay, well, it, it doesn't really matter. For example, William Moore is entitled to his First Amendment rights, and I give him that. I don't believe him blindly. William Moore has a lot of problems if you could discover his whole background. There are a lot of things about him that I have problems with, but that's okay. My point is, is that whatever it is, it's from some entity, whether it's the shadow governments, whether it's the Bilderbergs, the, the trilateral or the Council of Foreign Relations, by the way, one of those people, you know, the shadow governments, the overlords, if you will, that really control the world rather than our president and Congress, etc. It doesn't matter. Whoever it is, these are not people that are out for your best interest. These are people who are trying to literally become a one world government, kind of, you know, the new world order mentality, and they're not for your best interest. And they're basically into cover-ups. It's as simple as that. Our government has been known for cover-ups since day one. Every government has been involved in cover-ups. The Catholic Church, the Vatican has been involved in cover-ups. Every organization has any power that has any position and has any amount of money, which both go hand-in-hand, hand, money and power, they're all going to be involved in, in covering their dirty laundry to keep their power base. It's, it, the Egyptian Mystery School pre-6,000 years ago did that. I mean, it, it's, you, you can't prove it, but again, can anybody really prove that Lee Harvey Oswald was, was a sole shooter of John F. Kennedy? No. Can they prove that there were other shooters? There's suggestive evidence that it was. Did they know who they were? No. But of course, there's a lot of allegations, whether they were three guys behind the, the grassy you know who were mafiosa hired by the mafia, whatever, by the CIA. Or Fred Lee Chrisman. Maybe Fred Lee Chrisman was one of them. Fred Lee Chrisman being a figure in the uh, Maury Island affair. David? Or energy beams. Energy beams destroyed the World Trade Center, too. Or everything that we consider reality is one big consensual hallucination. That the Matrix is a documentary, not a movie. Look... You well, can. The, the East Indians would talk about the Mayas, the illusions of the Earth plane, which means that how do you know, for example, when you woke up this morning, how did you know that you actually didn't cross into spirit and now you're on the astral plane? Because when you do cross into spirit, you don't know you've changed dimensions for a long time until it's explained to you, until your, your family and relatives can't actually hear you or see you. How do you know that, for example, that this isn't all like um, a figment, or, or as they say in the old submarine, the Beatles cartoon of 1968, a pigment of your imagination? How do you know that there's nothing out there but a black void and where you Using some universal collective unconsciousness, if you will, or whatever, to create all this. We don't know any of that. We just simply have to go by what we go by, and we have to have some sort of a belief system, or else we're all going to go crazy and kill each other or kill ourselves. Well, I believe that's already happened. I believe we have indeed all gone crazy, and we are indeed all killing each other. That seems to be the history of planet Earth. Meanwhile... But it's not the future, though. It's not the future. Let me tell you something. I realize what's going on. You don't know that. You don't well, know I, that. I, I, you I'm might... Right now. I'd rather well, go down with a positivity and go down swinging with what my research has shown as well as corroboration from patients and my own individual corroboration than to go through life sitting there getting duct tape to, co to cover my doors every time I go in and out to make sure the biological warfare elements don't get to me. You don't win that game. Fear hey. is the reason why people are miserable, not because of the government or because of the food they're eating. It's actually fear. Fear is propagated by the government. Fear often is a result of bad nutrition. When people don't eat properly, their brain 
brain's not getting nourished, which means that now their electrochemical computer has gone haywire and they're not thinking clearly. When people are indoctrinated into fear by turning on their TVs and seeing fear promoted constantly, bashed into their heads via the idiot box, then indeed, you know, who is creating that program on television? The mass media. Who supports that? But you've got to accept it. David, you've got, first of all, there's a couple of premises. Number one, fear is not produced by bad nutrition. You could have biological depression. You could have not enough serotonin. I understand all the biochemistry. Believe me, I studied that. However, you can't biochemically give you fear. Fear has to be free will, First Amendment right, accepted. When the government tells me there's an orange alert, I say to myself, excuse me, I'm going out to play tennis, and I'm working on my serve, okay? I could care less about the government's yada yada trying to induce fear. The The reason the government induces fear, by the way, is not real complicated. It's because they want to justify compromising people's civil rights for the purpose sure. of freedom. No debate there. No debate there. Fear okay. is so, the element so, of but, control. But you can't biochemically say, okay, I'm going to give you a cup of fear. Fear is something you either accept or you don't. Either you have that mind, that, that Vulcan mind meld, so to speak. Empowerment, and this is where psychic empowerment comes in. You're using your mind. Forget the biochemistry for a moment because your mind is more important anyway. But if you if don't accept fear, Okay, if you simply say, I'm going to do my thing, I have a positive belief of the future and my present, and I'm going to do my thing regardless of what all the people out there do, they're welcome to their mentalities. If you have that kind of empowerment, you're going to be a whole lot better off. And if I'm wrong, guess what? I'd rather it be that so and be wrong and be happy than to go through life constantly hiding my wallet, scanning the world for all the enemies that are about to get me. I don't live my life that way, and I don't recommend anybody, either you or your audience, do either because you don't win that game. You don't Certainly. Want that game at all. Everything seems to be discussed in terms of extremes. Either we are extremely A or B. We're extremely black or white. We're extremely fearful or not. But there are middle grounds here. There is a natural mechanism of fear that says, if you're up on the top of a building, don't walk right to the edge of the ledge. Be fearful of that because you might fall off. You know, one cannot say that fear is useless. There's a reason fear is inside of us. Do you know the difference between a phobia and a fear? Well, a phobia is illogical. A phobia is an irrational fear. Irrational fear. That's the key term. You got it. Irrational. Now, therefore, we have a natural fear of heights. People don't walk off the edge of buildings unless they're absolutely schizophrenic. We have a natural fear. Fear heights, but to fear that the government is going to be after you or that your next door neighbor is out to get you, like an old Twilight Zone episode, you know, remember the nuclear fallout shelters are going to come in there and cram into it when there's a nuclear war. If you do that irrational aspect, and using duct tape to line your doors is irrational, okay? People will accept you right. There are people who, most people with all due respect, accept the brainwashing of the three major parts of, of civilization. Civilization is controlled by three bureaucracies. you got government. We all know about them in their brainwashing. We know about corporations, the corporate overlords, as you guys like to describe it, and I agree with that, by the way. And then you have religion, who tries to scare you with eternal damnation. And that's interesting because I want to bring that up because that's part of the fear. Do you know where the concept of the devil and hell comes from? It'll surprise you. Go ahead. The concept of the devil and hell was never around on the history of this planet until approximately 3100 B.C. I document this in the Egypt book, and I give the scholarly, this is not my opinion, this is the opinion of scholars. This is academic 
academic archaeologists and history and Egyptologists and historians. Before the year 3000, give or take 3000 BC, throughout the world there were plenty of Aborigine groups. There were plenty of shamans go back 50,000 years in Siberia. We have plenty of records of civilization and cultures. The term the devil and hell was created by the Egyptian mystery school priests in approximately 3100, give or take 3000 BC, when they unified Egypt to become the first state. When Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt, Upper being the southern port because the Nile flows from south to north, was unified under the legendary Pharaoh Menes, who was actually a time traveler, but that's another story. Okay, Uh, I'll tell you what, we're going to stop and ask about that in a moment. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that. Radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to The Paracast with my two friends, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You're in The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dr. Bruce Goldberg, author of Egypt, an Extraterrestrial and Time Traveler Experiment and other books. Okay, so I am now wondering here, how do we know this person was a time traveler? Well, again, the time traveler aspect is something that Lewis Herbert Gray, the editor of The Mythology of All Races, Volume 13 of a 13-series volume, published in 1964, it was my main source for discovering the fact that, and this is his opinion, his research, and his other and his colleagues, that before the year approximately 3000 B.C., there was no reference to the hell or devil other than the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which, of course, is an older book anyway than that, but that's where they depicted the fires of hell. Apophis was the serpent that was considered to be the devil. The Greeks called him Diabolos, etc. But it all comes from ancient Egypt, and if you look at ancient Egypt, we also know that if you study theology, Moses was a learned man of Egypt. That's a quote from the Old Testament. So you have the Jews copying the Egyptian book of the dead for the devil and hell. They didn't spend much time talking about it, but the Christians sure did, all big time, especially in Revelations, and that's where we get the devil and hell. If you don't have the devil and hell, nobody goes to church, nobody cares about their lifestyle and breaking Ten Commandments or whatever else their moral ethical code is, because they don't have to worry about eternal damnation. There is no such 
such thing as hell. There's a lower astral plane, which people will think is hell, but it's temporary, folks, so you can get out of it. And you do. And you reincarnate. But the concept of hell is a real big seller for religion. Okay, so well, you see, it comes back to the saying. same problem, which is what we, you're making a lot of statements, so many statements. Right. We're trying to seize one at a time. So, okay, okay, you're reincarnated. How do we know you're reincarnated? Well, again, you can only get suggestive evidence. My documented case, The Search for Grace, which was done independently by CBS, which is not exactly a fan of my work. They're very conservative, and I never did a movie on reincarnation before 1994, I can tell you that. You get Ian Stevenson, professor of Virginia, University of Virginia, for, what, 50-some-odd years, been doing research documenting kids who are three to five years old, giving names, dates, and places of, of civilizations that are thousands of miles from where they live in some little village somewhere in India, which is a very poor country, basically. They give the vocabulary. They give. They speak fluent languages. I've had a patient who was five years old. Here's an example of suggestive evidence. You can't prove this. I had a patient who was five years old, a very bright little kid, but the kid watches cartoons. He's speaking medieval German dialect. It was documented. I speak a little German from my, my college background because in science I took German as language, but I went to a language expert. This language expert documented the kid's language, and the kid spoke fluently. You could ask him a question in Bavarian German, which is not even used today in Germany. It's a medieval dialect, and he could answer the question. Where does he get that from? He doesn't get that from his Cocoa Puff cartoon commercials. He gets that because, again, you can say, was it telepathy? Was he tapping into the collective unconsciousness? Was it some spirit guide or some lower astral entity? Whatever it is, we don't know, but I'll tell you one thing. Reincarnation is my number one alternative hypothesis to explain that. And again, people have died in past lives by being stabbed, etc., by a certain scar. All of a sudden, the kid, the newborn, and this is Ian Stevens' more recent work and other of his colleagues, to show that people actually inherit the scars from their past life death scene. <laughs> I mean, they even look like some of their past lives. There's a certain genetic compatibility that comes to most people who reincarnate, by the way, do not stay in the same family line. So you can't just go by genetics. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, so, how do we know that, too? But well, it's, it's my research. I've done, the problem I've done I have 35,000 regressions in the last 33 years. I mean, I'm, my research is one of them, but I'm talking okay, about Okay, but Stevenson, the fact that somebody says something in a regression doesn't necessarily mean it's true. There could be other reasons, other influences that cause that to happen. And then certainly if you had any peer review of your hypnotic sessions to see whether others, independent people, feel that maybe you're not following a traditional path and getting this information? Well, of course, hypnosis is, I mean, Stevenson doesn't like hypnosis either. He wouldn't do hypnosis. He would just talk to kids at the most psychic level of development, which is between two and five, have a conversation with them without doing a formal hypnotic induction, and the kid would start relating about the past life. So, but here's the point. Yes, my colleagues have peer reviewed. We have other colleagues who've done the same things. We've had scientists who are not hypnotherapists like Ian Stevenson and his group and others. There are many others around the world doing this now. The whole point is is that most people, the average person, your Joe Six back out there, so to speak, they would assume that, number one, you don't change sexes in past lives, which is not true, although three-quarters of your lives are as the same sex. You're going to spend at least 25% of your lives as the opposite sex. People report changes of sexes. They also assume that um, you're going to stay in the same family line, which is not true. They also assume you're going to stay as the same race or ethnic background, which is not true at all. You change all kinds of races. What about animals? What about being reincarnated as a cow? Well, this this is the interesting thing. That's transmigration from the old Tibetans. And even the Tibetans, by the way, I have no evidence. I've never regressed a head of lettuce yet, okay? Everybody's been human. Some people more human than others, but everybody's been human. Even the Tibetans, the, the classic transmigration is the old philosophy. They feel that the original individual person we see today was originally the rock, the mineral kingdom. Then they, they matriculated or matured into the plants, and then the lower animals, and then human. Once you reach the human form, according to the Tibetans and the Hindus, if you will, from India, you don't regress 
back into a previous, like a lower animal or a plant or a rock. So even they will agree that once you're human, you're always going to be human. That's not the issue at all. The issue here is that you're getting, again, consistency. You get documentation. You get things that people uh, usually, people who would expect the opposite, and they're telling you the opposite of what they were, shall we say, preconceived or prejudicially affected by. They were assumed, and they're saying the opposite of what they said. You know, I didn't think, I thought that we always stay the same sex, or I thought that I always be white or black or whatever the racial aspect is. So we're getting, again, that is only suggestive evidence, but it really mounts up. It's sort of like the Temple of Dendara hieroglyphic. When you add one little element, was it hemp or was it a braided cable? And then you throw in the Von de Graaff generator, you throw in the Crooks tube, you throw in the guy with the headsets, you throw in the baboon with the knife, and you're starting to build a very impressive case. You know, let me ask you a question here. I know David has a number of questions, but I'm going to throw one more out. And that is, the problem we have, I think, is because you're making a lot of statements that, you know, don't seem to be verified except that other people make the same claim. How would you go about, or is there a way to go about, verifying reincarnation in a laboratory setting so we know that there really is such a thing as reincarnation? It's not just a theory that is being voiced because of a certain phenomenon. Well, you really can't do it in a laboratory, and I'll tell you why. As a, I'm a scientist, okay? That's my trait. So let me show you what science says. Science says that if there is an alternative hypothesis, your paradigm, if you will, is not going to be proved. You can give suggestive evidence, but you can't prove it. For example, let's say I take a five-year-old child or a four-year-old child, and let's say I work with him, and this kid is from a Scotch-Irish background. Let's say, you know, a good old American or whatever, Scotch-European background. And he starts speaking in the Ming Dynasty Chinese, okay? And he starts not only speaking the language fluently with language experts there, but starts giving the depictions, the geography of his village, starts giving names, dates, and places. Now you're going to say, whoa, guess what? You know what scientists would say? If I was going to be on the other end and being a laboratory scientist on federal grants, I would say, okay, we don't have reincarnation as the only alternative hypothesis. How do we know he's not telepathically communicating with the soul of this Chinese gentleman from 3000 uh, BC? Or how do we know he's not tapping into the Akashic record stored on the causal plane in the space-time continuum? Or how do we know he's not dealing with a lower astral entity trying to play games with us and giving us information which is verifiable, but in fact is just based upon the lower astral entity having a bad hair day and getting sick and tired of watching Oprah. See, there's too many other explanations out there, all of which, by the way, are paranormal or ESP, if you will. So guys like the not-so-amazing Randy would not like it, but it doesn't prove reincarnation. Reincarnation is only one hypothesis. However, it's the most likely one when you add all the other evidences and all the other anecdotes and all the other examples together. No, it's not. No, it's well, not. I mean, you, you may like telepathy as an answer. A lot of people like that. Whatever your cup of tea is, but the point is... I could turn to quantum physics and I could say, you know, in fact, if we look at the quantum mechanics view of the universe, then there is no past, present and future. They're all simultaneous. And by some strange quirk about the electromagnetic field around this person at this moment, the boundaries between the different metaverses have broken down and they are actually relating information that is concurrent, but simply not within our instrumentation's reach. That, that's fine. I, I'll accept that's a very nice scientific and nice and nice. Mentality. However, if you do 
scientific. It's not scientific. Well, we have okay. no it's, proof of metaverses. No, we well, have, well, actually, we, we do. No, no, that's not true. That's not true. Let's be, let's be accurate. We have mathematical models. Hewitt the third thesis, which is now 50 years old, 1957, has been picked apart by more people than a Thanksgiving turkey. Okay? You can imagine the scientists in the other field, other than quantum mechanics, and astronomers and astrophysicists, they have tried to tear this thing apart in journals, and guess what? It has stood the test of time, just as most of Einstein's theory of relativity has stood the test of time. Some haven't. We can go beyond the speed of light, but most of it has held up. My point is, is that parallel universe is a fact mathematically. There is no argument on that. If you are well familiar with integral calculus and read all the, and have experience with quantum mechanics and look at the Hugh Everett III's equations and his many worlds phenomena dissertation, which is on the public, you can Google it, you can get it on the, it's public document, it's published. Uh, it's not an arguable hypothesis. Just like Kip Thorne when he came up with the wormhole, enlarging of the wormhole to allow an advanced civilization to create a time machine, which is a quote from his article in 1988, September 26, 1988, Physical Review Letters. That's a scientific journal that's equivalent to any scientific journal today. That's Kip Thorne, who is considered to be one of the world's, if not the world's, authority on astrophysics and time travel. He outdebated Stephen Hawking and won the bet about black holes. That's how good Kip Thorne is, okay? This guy's a genius. Well, all that means is that we have the mathematical models. We know how to do time travel mathematically. We don't have exotic matter, which is what you need to build a time machine or to enlarge a wormhole. We can't enlarge a wormhole. We can't even see one today, let alone make a classical size to put a ship in there and a human being and other occupants. But we know the model exists. We know mathematically Kip Thorne's model will work if we could get exotic matter and get a wormhole and, and knock it up and get enough energy. You that it will work. Come on, Bruce. That's not intellectually honest. You don't know that it will work. You can't say we know it will work if only we had the energy source. Until we have the energy source, we don't know what the ramifications of that energy source being switched on are. Kip Thorne says it will work, and, and I, I will go with Kip Thorne as one of the world's, if not the world's foremost authority on wormhole linear accelerator time travel paradigms. I will go with Kip Thorne from Caltech and Pasadena. With all due respect to you or anybody else out there, even some even some hobbyist scientists out there, I will go with what Kip Thorne says. Kip Thorne says that, yes, if you've got exotic matter and advanced civilization can do it, this will work. I will buy Kip Thorne's mentality until somebody proves and shows me a mathematical model with very strange architectural. You should see the diagrams in this thing. It's beautiful if you understand the math. And I'm not a physicist. The point is that I, unless I see a model, a mathematical model that actually brings out the equations and shows me that he's wrong, I'm going to accept Kip Thorne. He's oh, going to be how, the tipmeister in my life. How would we you know about this? Before that, we argue about this, let us just do this break real quickly. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the 
in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking Dr. Bruce Goldberg, having a spirited discussion, not only about the book Egypt, an extraterrestrial and time traveler experiment, but the ramifications. David, I agree. How would you know? Expand on that. How would you know if, if the mathematical construct that would contradict Kip Thorne's work is presented to you, Dr. Goldberg, how do you know whether it's wrong or right if you don't have the mathematical understanding and knowledge to evaluate it? Well, because people like Steve Hawking, who is, by the way, an antagonist to Kip Thorne, on his mentality about the wormhole paradigm, if you will, and many other physicists and astrophysicists and hyperspace specialists around the world have been attacking him for the last 19 years. And just like with, with uh, good old uh, Hugh Everett III from Princeton, guess what? They argue in journals all the time. They go back and forth. If you know the scientists, they use the journals as their spokespodium, if you will. Not one person, in fact, they validated it. He's been validated. Every single one of them that I know of, every one of the skeptics, every one of the people who've challenged him either have been silent, which means they can't prove it, or or it can't prove the opposite, or they validated his research, just like Einstein's equations. You know, Edward Witten from Princeton, the big superstring guy. Do you know what was interesting? If you deal with superstring theory, you know what comes out of the superstring equations? The Einstein's theory of relativity, okay? It's a subset of the super... Now, I'm not saying superstring is the theory of everything. It isn't. I think the M1 theory is, uh, is better, but the point is, is that this has been 19 years ago. He's been picked apart, and nobody has said... By the way, if, any, if I'm wrong, if anybody disproved him, that would be an Associated Press wire surface story right now, real fast, just like when quantum teleportation was discovered or done in 1996. You guys, I'm sure, heard about that in Austria and, and Italy, and then replicated here and others. That was a big story, wasn't it? You know, it was all the thing about Star Trek and beam me up, Scotty. Everybody heard about that, at least anybody in the media. My point is that, well, Kip Thorne, because of his relationship with Stephen Hawking, because of his stance about the uh, wormhole mentality and time travel, yes, that would have been made rather public. I would have heard about it. person watching the Today Show would have heard about it, and it hasn't happened in 19 years, and that's a long time for science. One of the things we constantly talk about on the Paracast is the danger in making definitive statements about anything. We try to approach these topics with an open mind, but with a skeptical mind. It always concerns us when we hear the term skeptic being put down or put into any kind of a derogatory light. It's always very important to differentiate between a debunker and a skeptic. Skeptical thinking is critical, critical to any any attempt to have any deeper understanding of the universe. And I will say that in a very definitive fashion. I will, I will agree with you, but I don't think Michael Schaumer is an objective, skeptical, I think he's a debunker who just wants to, he's a historian, he's not even a scientist. People don't know that, they don't read his background. Absolutely. We have talked about the fact that Schirmer is an asshat. Okay? And he gets I've a lot said, of attention, doesn't he? he gets a lot of publicity, he's on the History Channel every other Absolutely. week. Absolutely. You know he's that, in, okay? He writes a monthly thing for Scientific American as well. Mm -hmm. This is a guy who has said that you can't trust the observations of a pilot in terms of aerial phenomena any more than a guy in the street corner. We know he's full of crap, okay? That's not, that's not in, in debate on this show. At the same time, Bruce, I'm looking right now at your website at a page called Am I a Time Traveler? Mm -hmm. Where essentially you imply that you are. 
You don't well, no, no, I don't. That, that's not what the site says. Okay, I, I wrote that site. I'll tell you what that site says. What that site says, that site originated from the coast-to-coast interviews I did with Art Bell and, and Art Bell before George Norrie. On the blogs that have been around the universe for the past 10 years, people have been saying that, look, these guys quoting 35th century technology. This guy's talking about time travels. Nobody else has written the books that he's the details of this. This guy must be a time traveler. So what I did was, because I believe in psychic empowerment, I said, hey, folks, I'm not going to give you a yes or no answer. Figure it out for yourself. A couple of years ago, I went on George's show. I'm a regular guest on the show and said, by the way, George, I'm not a time traveler, okay? Okay? I'm not a time traveler. I was born in 1948 in this century. However, future lives now, that's a different ballgame, okay? But right now, no way I'm not a time traveler, and I ended the argument. Now, that article was written 10 years ago when it came up on our site. But the purpose of that was to have people think, not to spoon feed them. The last thing I want to do is do what a lot of the media do and a lot of other organizations do is spoon feed people with their, shall we say, rather carefully designed mentality to try to get a point across with their sound bites and their, and their illustrious brainwashing. I want people to think for themselves. I don't want to spoon feed them. But I've made that statement public about two years ago, a year and a half ago on Georgia's show. It's public record. It's archived on Coast to Coast AM. So that is just on there as, a, as an older article, but it still gets the point across to people who don't know what I said on the air recently is that mm-hmm. let them think a little bit. It wasn't just done to make a cartoon out of it, but to have them think a little bit. Use their cerebral matter and their gray matter. If people did that more, I wouldn't be worried about the brainwashing ads they see on TV and the corporate lines of the corporate overlords and all the other organizations that unfortunately take advantage of people's gullibility. All right. Well, you certainly can agree about gullibility and how corporate systems and advertising agencies do things like that. But I know we're kind of delving quite a bit on the issue of time travel. But let's talk about extraterrestrial visitations, too. Okay. Okay. So do you have a picture in your mind or in your research as to where there has been extraterrestrial interaction? And if so, what kind of creatures are we talking about? The blonde Caucasians who show up in ancient times? Are they from Zeta Reticuli? What are we talking about? And what about the so-called gray aliens that we hear about now? Okay, well, first, let's understand now. When I talk about, we have to separate now the time travelers. I have four different types of time travelers, so I'm going to separate those for a moment. The time traveler, the, the head of the time travel team is a Caucasian, and people always ask about the ethnic and racial aspect. It's simply if you send people with darker skin back in time from 3,100 AD to, let's say, 2,000 BC in ancient Egypt, they kill them. The blondes are the, with, with the blue eyes and the blonde hair and the Caucasians are worshipped as gods. The first time traveler was Tatos, T-A-A-T-O-S, from the year 3050, give or take, who discovers time travel becomes the first time traveler and then has a team set up. This is a government program now. And his colleagues are named Geb, Isis, Osiris and Horus. Now, you don't have to be a student of Egyptology to realize that each and every one of those, Tatos would have been Thoth from ancient Egypt, by the way. He's also called Tatos and Thoth, and the Greek called it Hermes. Those were all Egyptian gods, worshipped as Egyptian gods, but they were all time travelers. Now, as far as the ETs are concerned, on a futuristic team, you will have the Zeta Reticuli, the greys. They can also be little blues and little lights. They don't have to be gray, but most of them are gray. They can also have the hybrids who are part genetic a human and part extraterrestrial. They become the supervisors, if you will, doing the laboratory techniques of the firm and egg samples and some of the other sophisticated aspects of this. Uh, they also perform some of the quantum medicine activities, which is quantum medicine is a technique that's developed about a thousand years from now where if a person clinically dies, 
Clayfully crosses into spirit. If you cast them within 24 hours and their head wasn't blown off, you can revive them. You can resuscitate the dead. You can also regenerate lost limbs, arms, legs, etc., by using quantum medicine. It deals with a very specific energy field, very complex mechanism, which I described in my first time travel book called Time Travels from Our Future. It's a very complex mechanism. The point is, is that, yes, there are mostly grays. There are reptilians, by the way, but you don't want to run into one of those. Why? Because reptilians are, first of all, they're nasty and they're cannibalistic. They tend to eat their mistakes. You have very few reports of reptilians because mostly they kill and eat people. So you're not going to get a whole lot of reports, but there are some. There are reptilians in the future, too, that come back. They're not time travelers per se, meaning that they're not agents on the government teams. They're usually people who are running away from the futuristic cops because they're like criminal records, if you will, and they don't have wings. They're not the Draco types that you see in the current century, but uh, there are reptilians, too. But the majority of the ETs that you'll see, at least that have been reported by my patients, etc., and the abduction etc. are the little grays. They're the ones that do the actual physical abductions when they do abduct. Uh, take them aboard crafts, some of these case histories where their people are brought down to a military base like Dulce, New Mexico and others. So now we have a government conspiracy because there are people with Air Force uniforms running around helping with the medical tests and doing some of the interrogations in these big conference rooms. So now we have a very specific correlation uh, shall we say, conspiracy aspect with the involvement of the U.S. government and the governments all over the world are involved. It's not just the U.S. government. We seem to have gotten the most technological advancements, but uh, most of your civilized countries around the world have had some exposure with ETs, and I suspect time travelers, too. I can't prove that part. I'm mostly dealing with America. Well, so, Bruce, a few moments ago, you said the time travelers coming back, they don't appear to us to be the people who have all the answers. They don't want to be treated by us as gods. But they had no problem with the Egyptians treating them as gods? They had no choice. You come back and you do some technology and you start uh, helping them. You understand, you think the Pyramid of Giza would have been built by the primitive Egyptians? And by the way, it wasn't built 2500 B.C. It was began about 9500 B.C. And the water erosion from the sink shows that it couldn't possibly be built during the Pharaoh Shepherd. It has to go back at least 7000 B.C. when there was water in the Sahara Desert. But Robert Shoke from Boston, the uh, geologist from Boston University, and others have shown that. We're talking about the unification of Egypt. We're talking about relatively primitive nomads or hunter-gatherers becoming farmers, if you will, in, let's say, 3500 B.C., 4000 B.C. You think in 500 years you're going to take a bunch of primitive, barbaric, basically able to grow wheat or whatever they grew there, and you're going to have them build the Pyramid of Giza, beautiful hieroglyphics, and the Sphinx, which is an unbelievable structure for that time, to say nothing of the fact that in 100 years, all the pyramids that were built that of any significance were great. All the hieroglyphs were beautiful. A hundred years later, they were garbage. Why is that? Because when you're being told by other people what to do, and those mentors of yours, those teachers go bye-bye, which they did, either returning to the present in time travels or ETs going back to their home planet, whether it's Ada Reticuli or others, then you have no longer the advisors, and guess what? You regress back to where you were before. After a while, all of a sudden, you degenerate because you can't copy the answers to the test. And that's exactly what happened in Egyptian mentality, and, and that is, does not make any logical sense other than the fact that somebody else tutored them and somebody else is responsible. For example, we don't know how was the Pyramid of Giza built. It wasn't 100,000 slaves over 20 years, as the old old literature would say. First of all, we've only found the equivalent of 3,000 huts, or the remnants of those, around the Pyramid of Giza. You're talking about 100,000 slaves, you're talking about a quarter of a million people with their wives, the security guards, the, all the people that service them for food, etc. So what happened is that in my research, I discovered 
aboard, if you will, anti-gravity flying crafts. And that raises a lot of foreheads. I realized that. And I got pictures of them in the book. I got a nice little depiction of them. And guess what? The only people to use anti-gravity technology in the construction of the megaliths, not just the Pyramid of Giza, but the Sphinx and the Stonehenge in England and other megaliths around the world, Easter Island, etc., were the time travelers, not the ETs, because they couldn't bring all that equipment back here from their planets. The time travelers, of course, had access to their own teleportation techniques, and they're on the same planet, so it was a lot easier for them to deal with anti-gravity technology. That's how the Pyramid of Giza was built, as well as all the other megaliths that are around that we can't possibly explain. Japan, several years ago, tried to build the Pyramid of Giza, the equivalent, and failed, using 20, at the time, the end of the 20th century technology. What do we learn from that? I'll tell you what. <laughs> I think we're raising a lot of peripheral issues here. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to Dr. Bruce Goldberg, who is author of Egypt, an Extraterrestrial and Time Traveler Experiment. And what I'm seeing, Dr. Goldberg, is that you seem to have a lot of certainty about all this stuff, about they're from Zeta Reticuli, but we haven't really proven that we've ever been in touch with anybody from Zeta Reticuli. Or do you cite the Barney and Betty Hill case because of the star map? How do we know well, it's Zeta I, I, Reticuli? I didn't, by the way, I didn't cite that in the book, but I love that case because the reason being is because when the psychiatrist who did hypnotic regression, when he was working with uh, Betty Hill especially, when she gave that star map, in those days, astronomers did not know that star system existed. It was about five years, if you remember the research, when they finally were able to, with telescopes and other research, to actually corroborate that star system. And that star system that she gave wasn't perfect, but let me tell you something, it was close enough to the government. It was a very, very interesting depiction. But again, she didn't describe the grays in detail. She didn't talk about the three to five feet tall. He didn't go into any of that detail. She was focusing in on those memories were very traumatic, post-traumatic stress disorder, if you will. She was focusing on what she could remember, and the majority of what she could remember was the star system map. So to me, that's a very impressive case. So is the Pleiades depiction on the cave painting, which is even more impressive because it was over 20,000 years ago in southern France by some ogre-ogre sitting there with his wife and his, uh, and Dino the dinosaur. You know, I mean, very interesting example of a star system depiction that wasn't to be known for at least 20,000 years. Maybe it was a time traveler there telling them what to paint. Well, you just supported my hypothesis. Fine. We're on the same page. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, so, by the way, it's, uh, remember Francis Crick, the co-developer the co of DNA, you know, Watson sure. Crick model, 1953, Watson, whatever? Mm -hmm. Well, Francis Crick is the origin, or one of the co-authors, if you will, of directed panspermia. Do 
you know what that is? Mm-hmm. Directed panspermia, for the benefit of your listeners that may not be familiar with it, simply says that Dr. Crick, a Nobel laureate, by the way, simply states that molybdenum is very critical to protein synthesis in our, in our body system. You could have all the prebiotic soup, as he describes, that existed, say, three billion years ago. You're not going to get life created unless you have molybdenum, which is very rare on this planet. And he says the only way life could have developed basically was seeding from either extraterrestrials or some other entities from some other planets coming in here. And not just on meteorites, but actual seeding. Because his mentality was that if you take the prebiotic soup that existed three billion years ago before there was anything but single-cell organisms, and you can put all the combinations together, that would be like going to a junkyard, taking a tornado, and winding up with a 747. He says the odds against that were 1 to 26 zeros to 1. That's a lot of odds about prebiotic soup forming carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, forming the double spiral helix, DNA, and all the, the nucleic acid and the protein synthesis. They're very complex molecules if you study biochemistry. That's literally as far as as close as you're going to get to scientists saying it's possible. So basically, Dr. Crick, Dr. Francis Crick, a Nobel laureate, is saying ETs are here, have been here, case closed. Arthur Horn, a Harvard archaeologist, also agrees. Dr. Berinda Fox is a physiologist who also is associated with Ivy League universities, and she says that ETs gave us the EB virus, herpes, and HIV. We have people who are very credible who are saying Sure, absolutely. And we have Dr. Watson, who just resigned from his post because he said that black people are not as smart as white people. Also Nobel laureate. Yeah. But don't don't equate, though. You can't equate a, a statement like that with Dr. Crick's statement about directed panspermia. That's apples and oranges. Because one is a racist mentality. One could be Archie Bunker reincarnate, and the other one is showing science. I'm familiar with the production of nucleic acids and and proteins. We tried to do that in my genetics and biochemistry lab in in the 60s in Southern Connecticut State University. Couldn't do it. My professor was a real expert in genetics. He couldn't do it under a federal grant. He couldn't do it either. That was 40 years ago. Today, with all the technology, all the supercomputers and all the satellite dishes and space stations, everything else we got, we still can't create life in the lab. We know how it's done. We know the mechanics. I mean, we know the, we know the components. We can't put it together. And this is, we have a lot of advanced technology. This isn't the bionic woman here, but we've got a lot of advanced technology in medicine, and especially in biochemistry, and we can't create life that supposedly just happened to happen three billion years ago for the heck of it. And the reducing atmosphere of our planet, which was hydrogen mostly, which could not support life, coincidentally became an oxidizing atmosphere with all the plants, etc., just enough to allow life to exist that was seeded and I'm going to be very definite about that if you look at the Cambrian explosion and you look at the history of life 95% of the species have been eliminated from this planet from cosmic radiation and from all kinds of sources that we're not really sure of and all of a sudden the ones that survived how did mammals survive the dinosaur age how did the dinosaurs get extinct was it just some comet crashing into Mexico one factor but maybe there were time travelers involved who also used some of the genetic manipulation from the radiation that would have been involved to, uh, shall we say, affect the genetics of those nice little rodents that were around and eventually become us with a little bit of seeding as examples. So you just can't go by the nice conventional. You can, but it's not logical. It's not accurate. It's not mathematically feasible. There are way too many factors that could have easily prevented us, and we should be nothing but slime. Because three billion years ago, the only thing that was on this planet was slime and lawyers, you know, and now we have human beings which should never have evolved. We shouldn't have evolved in the last 500,000 years if you deal with a paleontologist, if you will, about 
about the, our brain system or our brain stem, how it advanced so much in the last 500,000 years. With ice ages, we've had four major ice ages. We've had oh, so many calamities. We've had pole shifts in this planet. How the heck did we survive when we basically don't have the capabilities of your lower animals? We don't have the claws to climb trees. We don't have the long snout. We don't have the very advanced hearing and vision that birds do, for example, for vision. We don't have the dogs, the wolves, if you will, or whatever the predecessors were. We don't have any of their senses to survive except our brain and thumb. That's what kept us around. But guess what? It's not enough, especially with pole shifts and all kinds of calamities and, and weather problems and all kinds of other phenomena. We should have been extinct hundreds of thousands of years ago. Well, so, I'll tell you what, we're getting way far afield, and we don't have much time left. And I wanted to ask you before we let you go, Dr. Goldberg, sure. where does one get more information about your books and all the other things you're working on? You can go to www.dr, that's D as in David, R as in Robert, B-R-U-C-E, G-O-L-D-B-E-R-G.com. And they can also call my toll-free number, which is 1-800-CARMA, the number four, the letter U, which is 1-800-527-6248, which is good in the U.S. and Canada. Because of the much I appreciate your interview, if your listeners order my Egypt book through my office, they also get a free CD, which will allow them to guide back into their own past lives. Because I feel that every one of us today have had at least one life in ancient Egypt. And I'd like them to explore rather than just read about it. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Bruce Goldberg, on the Paracast. My pleasure. Thank you. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. I just love it, David, when people are so sure of themselves, the lower astral, the middle astral, the foot astral, and they have everything as a certainty in their lives, and they know what causes everything. They know about the time travelers, where they come from. They know about the aliens and where they come from. I don't know. That's a hard one for me. He has no evidence of anything. When I hear proclamations that we shouldn't have evolved, that people have some handle on why humans are here or that they shouldn't be here, but we're here because boom, boom, boom. Man, there's a quote I want to say, but I can't say it because you won't let me. (laughs) But it's a line from one of my favorite movies, Spinal Tap, and it references the name of an album of theirs. It's two words. The second word is sandwich. Okay, that I think explains it to a lot of people. I got to say that having looked over Bruce's website, having read a big chunk of uh, the book that he was kind enough to send us, the PDF of his uh, Egypt book, you know, if you talk a mile a minute, you can make anything sound real. But not when you're dealing with two New Yorkers like myself and Eugene. I've heard this spiel before. Unfortunately, I'm afraid to say we're going to hear it again if we continue to do the Paracast and the future. Bruce offered substantiation for nothing, and man, the minute he started attacking Bruce McAbee as a disinformation agent, that said, really honestly, everything to me. Because to come out with that stuff, you know, oh, he's never found an image that he thinks is real. Excuse me, he's written a whole book about images. He has found 
found to be compelling. I've spent time speaking to Dr. Maccabee at the Gaithersburg X Conference, and you couldn't have a better proponent for critical thinking in the evaluation of UFO cases. You have the current issue of UFO magazine, where Dr. Maccabee has written an article about the skeptics. And unfortunately, he calls them skeptics. And I actually want to say to Dr. McAbee, well, no, no, call them debunkers. But he puts down people like Philip Kloss and says, hey, look, there are these cases that are clearly unexplained objects. Is Dr. McAbee going to say these are extraterrestrial? No, he's too smart for that. He knows better. So to hear Goldberg put down McAbee the way he did and try to make this some sort of a support for his argument, I mean, come on. Now, what we didn't have a chance to get into was this book that he did about this woman, Grace, The Search for Grace, The True Story of Murder and Reincarnation. Now, here's an interesting little tidbit for our listeners. I went and uh, looked this book up on the web, and on the Amazon page for this book, there are a handful of reviews, and one of the reviews is by a woman by the name of Christine H. Doe's, and I'm going to read this for a minute. Christine writes on her Amazon review, a two-bullet review, she says, I am a direct relation to Grace Loveless Doe's, and I was offended by the book, as were many members of our family, including her son Clifford, who is now 80 years old. This book portrays Grace out to be a floozy, and she was not. Just an unhappily married woman. This book has brought disgrace to our family and a lot of heartache to Grace's son. Grace was a lovely person and well-liked by the Doe's family. Her mother, husband, son, and relatives loved her and were horrified by her murder, which is still unsolved today. Our family feels Dr. Goldberg is profiting money off of our family's tragedy. Now, I read this and I thought... Okay, this is, uh, this is interesting that this is someone who's related to Grace. So it lists her here as being uh, a resident of Buffalo, New York. God bless the Internet. I went on to switchboard.com, looked up Christine's number, called her, and spoke to her about this book that Dr. Goldberg wrote. Grace was a very nice lady, spoke to me for about 20 minutes, in fact, was very curious about the Paracast overall, and confirmed to me that the family was very hurt by some of the stuff that was in this book. The family did not feel that the book was real valid. And again, this is a woman who's related to the person who's the topic of this book that Dr. Goldberg wrote. So I think that's very telling in many ways. In doing some other searching on the web, and I'm not going to say this is definitive, but I think it needs to be mentioned, I did find a reference online to the notion that Dr. Goldberg, when he says he left dentistry, maybe he had to leave dentistry. Maybe there were some issues with the way he was practicing medicine. Again, I'm not trying to say this is definitive because on the Paracast, we try to keep away from making definitive statements. But one can find these things. I, honestly, I have a hard time with the idea that somebody is practicing dentistry and we know that dentistry is a very profitable endeavor. That's why I'm going overseas to have my dental work done, Gene. But, and again, you know, I'm sure there are going to be listeners that are going to now take us to task for bringing these things up after we had Bruce Goldberg on the show and we didn't make him address these issues. I think we had enough things that we questioned him about. I think he filibusters. I think he, uh, you ask him a question and he throws out 27,000 different things that do not necessarily have any relationship to this topic at hand. And if you try to, this is typical of certain guests we've had on in recent months 
those who've done the very same thing. And when you try to pin them down on their deception, very squishy, they just move on to another subject. Kind of get out from under it and go to something else. You know, talking a mile a minute has never impressed me, man. I know what that's about. You know, I've seen the three card Monty on the streets of New York, as I'm sure you have. And I've also gone to the car dealer and I talked to the fast talking gentleman from New York. And he tries to sell me not the car that I came in to buy, but the one that cost $5,000 more because of his commission. He needs to pay his gambling debts that month. And this guy sounded to me like the car salesman. He's selling product, the product being books about reincarnation, books about time travelers. And when you try to pin him down, everything becomes incoherent. Well, maybe he's not traveling through this well, dimension. It's another dimension. Yeah, and that dimension right. is, and if we he does some damage because of the time travel paradox, they will fix it because they have fixer uppers. Yeah. In the 35th on, on, century, whatever. Yeah. On his page, where he, the name of the page is, Am I a Time Traveler? There is his summation, and I contend that in this page, he basically reveals this all to be nonsense. And I'll tell you why. Because the very final paragraph is, the answer to the question, Am I a Time Traveler? I can only say that a true chrononaut takes an oath never to reveal that fact unless it is an emergency to do so. To do so would be a breach of what is known as timeline international security laws that exist in the future. Is that like the prime directive? Timeline international security laws? Bruce, this is a clear illogical statement. What you have done here is basically just trip up all of your logic. You claim to have encounters and open ongoing communications with people who have identified themselves as time travelers. Well, gee, based on what you've said here, they have taken an oath not to reveal to you that they're a time traveler. So how do you then know that they're a time traveler? You're saying here that it would be a breach of international timeline security laws. That's nonsensical, man. Why, if there was such a law like that, why would they give all this information, reveal everything to some primitive guy from the 21st century? I think the implication that we're supposed to read into this is that he's stating this not because he was told this, but because he's a time traveler. Even though he says that he said on Art Bill that he wasn't, of course, we always know that when people say things on toast to toast, that they must be true. The logical fallacies of this person's stories are so vast as to make all of this absolutely silly, man. This is just ridiculous stuff. To mix metaphors the way that that Bruce was doing it, you know, oh, it's uh, we have different types of time travelers. We have alien time travelers. We have human time travelers. We have the hybrid time travelers. This guy is doing what I think Jim Sparks is doing. Let's just cherry pick from all the different mythologies and mix it all up in a bowl and stick it in the oven and see what comes out. We'll have a new mythology that will basically deal with any contingency, will deal with any objection, and this will be what I am now going to base all of these many books I have written because, hey, there are a whole variety of books that Bruce has written down to even how to lose weight. So you've got time travelers, lose weight permanently and naturally, astral voyages, past lives, 
future lives, self-hypnosis. You've got spirit guide contact through hypnosis. You've got soul healing. Oh, you've got look younger, live longer. We could both use that one probably. But Speak for yourself, my friend. I'll tell you what. Yeah, yeah. I think at this point I just can't take it anymore. I am mad right. as hell, and I can't take it any longer. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. But You've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it, my life has value. I'll tell you what we can do. We can call on the forces of logic to present themselves again next week on The Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.